So first question, the first thing I want to dive into is the question of the book, which is this. How does or how can a good God allow suffering? Has anybody ever wondered that question? You have. I hope you have. I, one thing I want to end, chap, we're going to do chapter one right now, then we'll do chapter two after, after the discussion. Um, I'm going to show you something at the very end that never occurred to me that I think will help you. Because the question, the question, how can a good God allow suffering, actually answers the question. But, but I'll show you that in a second. So what Lewis does is he starts, C.S. Lewis was an, was an atheist. Some of you know that. He was an atheist, and he was an atheist for a lot of reasons. Part of it, if you read his, uh, his, uh, uh, his other stuff, he'll tell you he was an atheist because he was an academic, and in academics, that's sort of fashionable. It still is even today. Um, but he was an atheist for a lot of reasons. One of the big ones was this very issue. How can a good God allow bad things to happen, Right? I mean, many pe- how many people do you know have said, I can't believe in a God that allows X, Y, Z? Anybody? Of course you have. So Lewis actually was in that spot, right? How can I believe in a God when all this bad stuff happens? It's a really, really fascinating question. The premise of the question answers the question. I'll get to that in a second. But one of the things that Lewis said is, and I'll go through it if you want to write these notes down, is point number one, one of the things he discerned as he's trying to understand God and why he was an atheist is because he said the world is, in fact, bad, right? Anybody here a zoologist or study nature? Anybody? Anybody have animals at home? Anybody have a dog that chases, chases squirrels? Or, or a squirrel that lives in a... In a in a tree in your front yard that antagonizes your dogs. Uh, all, think about it like this. All animals, right? All, all animals, right? From amoebas all the way through people. All animal forms live by preying on something else, right? And it's, it's so funny. People talk about the beauty and the wonder of nature. That is insane. If you look at the nature, nature is cruel, Right? I mean, I was watching a documentary a couple of years ago about a spider. I hate spiders. I'm not, I hate them. I'm not crazy about them. Um, but it showed a spider eating, uh, eating a, uh, some kind of an animal that it caught in its web, you know? And the spider went up and killed this fly. Actually, didn't kill it. Um, injected it with this venom, which paralyzed it, and then injects an egg into this bug. The bug's alive, but paralyzed. And then the egg grows. The larva consumes the bug from the inside out while it's alive. And then it hatches. You're telling me that's the beauty of nature? I mean, and so I, the one thing I, I think it's important for us to realize, is nature beautiful? Yes, because it declares God's glory, the scripture says. But nature is cruel, it's cruel. Lewis made that observation. Second thing he says is that all, all forms of life exist by preying on each other. And he says here, uh, life is born in pain, lived by inflicting pain and death on each other. Okay? And then he says something really fascinating. He says, man, that's us, I mean people, not, I mean men and women, have the interesting uh, perspective of being able to foresee our own suffering, Right? And if you, we can foresee our own suffering, which we call worry, okay? Animals don't worry. Well, maybe they do, but we know for certain that human beings do worry. And he says that history, he says, so Lewis says, nature is cruel. Mankind understands anxiety and worry. History, he writes here, is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. Pretty bleak. Right? Sounds like Nietzsche, actually, at this, at this point. Of course, Nietzsche was an atheist for the very same reasons. And he wrote here that history is doomed. The universe, you may not know this too, but if Doug L was here, he would, he would give me a round of applause for this one. The universe itself is governed by the laws of thermodynamics. One of the laws, it might be the third or fourth, is the law of entropy. If you know, throw a flag. Third, thank you, Father. <laughs> the third law of entropy says that Creation winds down. Things fall apart, right? So the point, what Lewis says, he looked at the world all around him and said, if all this stuff is bad, this is what he says on page three. If you want to write this down, just put page three. He writes, if you ask me to believe in the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, benevolent means all good, omnipotent means all powerful. 
If you ask me to believe in the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I would reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. You tracking with him so far? Yes, it's chapter one. Either there is no spirit behind the universe or else a spirit indifferent to good or evil or an evil spirit. Page three. And then he wrote here, um, page four, the spectacle, spectacle of the, this is a great quote, the spectacle of the universe as revealed by experience, right? Which is where he was coming from. Look at the world around you, man. Uh, life is nasty, brutish, and short. But he writes here, the spectacle of the universe as revealed by experience can never be the ground of religion. In spite, uh, it must have been something in spite of which religion acquired, was acquired from a different source. What does that mean? Okay. What Lewis is saying, and actually, this is actually the problem, right? What Lewis is saying is if you look at the world from a, from a take, take your, your theistic believing in God hat off, be an atheist, a non-believer in God, and look at the world around you and look at all the suffering, he says, where in the world does this idea of a God even come from? Right? Does that make sense? Okay. And then he says two different things, and I'm going to get, it says two different things. I'm on page four or five right now. He talks about, and his second point he mentions is this idea of the numinous. You ever pick up, do I hear, hear that word in chapter one? What? What's that? The numinous. So what Lewis says, okay, fine. Lewis says, if you look at the world around you, how could anybody possibly believe in a God at all, let alone a good God? And he says, but here's the strange thing. Anthropologically, we have a, he goes through a couple of different things, but he says that all human cultures believe in the numinous. Now, what does he mean by that? And he's actually right. If you look at anthropology, all human history, all human cultures have believed in something bigger. You've heard me preach this before, right? So, for example, if you go to Native Americans, you go to uh, the people that live in the Mayans, even religions which are entirely different from Christianity, all human cultures believe in something bigger than themselves, which is not just awe-inspiring, but terrifying. Does that make sense? And he uses an, he uses an illustration of numinous, and I forgot what it was, um, that numinous is not just wow, but wow. Make sense? Something that we, we, we both know is there intrinsically, but yet is fearful. You with me? So Lewis is saying a couple things here in chapter one, and it's a lot, but he's saying the world is cruel, life is nasty, brutish, and short. Um, that's not what his words, my words. But the weird thing is, anthropologically, all human cultures believe in something different, right? And then he says um, in page nine, when man passes from physical fear to dread and awe, he makes a jump and apprehends something which could never be given as danger is by the physical facts. In other words, all human cultures are aware of something bigger that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't smell. We've never seen it, but all human cultures believe it's there. The numinous, right? We're not even at God yet. We're just, he's just talking about his own move from atheism to, to uh, Christianity. And then he, said, then he talks about morality. You guys with me so far? Okay, so he talks about life is cruel. However, all human cultures believe in this numinous thing. That's point number one, which got him thinking, where does that come from as an atheist? The second thing he discovered is this idea of morality. Now, it's interesting. Morals, by definition, are restraining humans from doing something that they want to do, right? Is that true? So a moral law, you don't have to make moral laws. You know, there's no moral law that says, you've ne you'll never say to your kids, hey, eat all the ice cream you want. I don't want any more. No, keep eating it, right? Your moral laws are always there to restrain us from doing something which our base natures want us to do. And so Lewis says, where in the world does that come from? Nietzsche kind of pivots off this a little bit earlier from, from Lewis, Frederick Nietzsche, who I'm a fan of in a negative way. <laughs> I don't like Nietzsche, but he's honest at least. So Lewis says, we, life is nasty, brutish, and short, and cruel. However, there's this idea of the numinous. Where does that come from, this idea of something bigger and greater than us? And secondly, where do these moral laws come from? And he says here something pretty fascinating. He says, um, 
We, in, we all agree, meaning all human cultures, um, here it is, page 11. Lewis touches on morality. He says, I ought, as approaching awe and respect, as they cannot be deducted from physical experience. In other words, all human cultures believe in an I ought, even though that I ought cannot be identified in the physical world. Are you with me? Okay, this is pretty heady, but I'm going to make a point in a second. Are you guys tracking with me at least? George, you good? Okay. You had a boy. Good. What's that? Goodish. Goodish, okay. Any questions? I've got, let me just pause there for a second. Any questions so far? If you're thinking it, everybody else is thinking it too. So if you're, if you're confused or don't get something, please throw a flag. Nothing so far? Okay, the world is cruel. However, human beings, have, we believe in the numinous and we believe in a moral law. And, he, and Lewis says in, on, on page 11 that morality and the numinous point to something. This, he would call it the supernatural. You with me? Then he says, interestingly, then he, he pivots. Just, this is a, an interesting pivot. He pivots into Judaism. This is on like the last two pages of the chapter. And I'm skipping over some stuff, but you can go back and read it if you want to. Uh, he pivots into Jeru to the, the Jews, and he says something actually very profound. He says, the Jews were unique in human history in that they combine the numinous and the moral law, right? In other words, the Jews believe in a God who reveals a moral law, and the moral law is what defines human behavior that is pleasing to God, Right? You with me? That's, that shouldn't be a big surprise to anybody here. And he says that, that the Jews believed in this idea of this God that was both numinous and revealed himself to humanity in the moral law. So far, so good? Okay. Then he pivots to Jesus. This is where it gets interesting. Anybody here familiar with Lewis's trilemma? Ever heard that before? I've preached it before. I've never called it. Maybe I have called it that. But Lewis is, Lewis is unpacking this. His, again, this is his gradual move from atheism to theism. And he said, the world is nasty, brutish, and short. But where does this Newmanness come from? This idea of a supernatural being we can't see, touch, feel, or smell. But every culture believes in it. And where does this moral law stuff come from? We all know we have to live by it or that we should live by a moral law. Where does that come from? Lewis says. It doesn't come from nature. So then Lewis says, well, the, the Judaism marries those two concepts of numinous, a God, and the moral law. And then he says, the fast, this, is, this, is the, this, is the, uh, this is the zinger. And I'm going to get to my point in a second, then we're going to have some discussion. He says, um, the revelation of Judaism marries the numinous and morality fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who, of course, was a Jew, who fulfills, if you're a Christian, you know this, that Jesus fulfills the moral law and the numinosity of God in human, in human flesh. Get to that some other time. But this is what he says. He says, Jesus as a Jew claims to be God, page 13. And so, and he did. Anybody who says that Jesus never claimed to be God doesn't know what they're talking about. He, you know, you can, you can reject the authority of Scripture, right? You can say that Scripture does not portray facts accurately, but if you assume that it does portray accurate facts because the people that wrote it said it did, <laughs> then Jesus claims to be God. So Lewis says on page 13 that Christ was either a raving lunatic of an unusually abominable type. <laughs> Only an Englishman could write something like that. When Christ claims to be God, the Son of God, either he was a raving lunatic of an unusually abominable type or else he was and is precisely what he says. He has a, later on, if you Google this, during, um, in, in World War II, Lewis had a series of lectures he would do on the BBC. And I, I don't know where the, his, uh, his famous uh, trilemma came from, but it, he, um, he, um, he unpacks this idea of Christ a little bit. This is pivotal for him. And what Lewis says is this, is look, if you're going to look at the claims of Jesus, right, that Jesus claimed to be the son, Jesus claims to be God. He does. You only have three options. It's a trilemma. A dilemma has two options. A trilemma has three. So Lewis says, if Christ claims to be the son of God, okay, that's the claim. He's on the stand. What does he say? He's the son of God. You've only got three options. He's a liar, right? He says, these are the three L's. 
of the trilemma. Either Christ is a liar, he's deceptive, he's not the son of God that claims to be. He's a lunatic, he's insane, or he's Lord, he is what he claims to be. That's Lewis's famous trilemma, and to me, it holds water. So Christ, if, if Christ claims to be the son of God who marries the numinous and the moral law, to examine the claim, there's only three options. Either, either he's a liar, Christ is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Now, again, if you go back to the facts of the case, in the Bible, nobody ever claims, or never, nobody ever calls Christ a liar, ever. Even if you look at, if you look at the non-scriptural references to him by the only one we have that's extant is, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank, the Antiquity of the Jews. Josephus. Josephus wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, where he said that Christ was the, the holiest of all men, if he can be called a man. He's a Jewish writer writing in the first century in that, part of, in, in that part of the world. And he himself said, this guy, Jesus, was so holy, he wasn't a liar. So if Jesus claims to be God, deceptive is off the table, right? Is he lunatic? Maybe. Could he be crazy? Yes, he could be. But crazy people don't raise the dead. So you have to look at the, you have to look at the facts of the case, the evidence, which leaves only one option, that he was Lord. So when Lewis is working through this whole thing, are you tracking with me so far? I'm throwing a lot at you. I'm just trying to unpack chapter one as I understood it. Um, uh, that he says the, the numinous and the law finds its fruition in Judaism, and then Judaism finds its fruition in Christ. Christ's claim was that he was the Son of God, and Lewis came to accept that as true because there's only three options. He's a liar, he's crazy, or he really is who he claims to be. And I think it kind of is that simple, frankly. And then he says something which I want to throw at you for a second here. He says um, that Jesus is the Son of God. And on page 15, go back and look at this. Christianity actually creates the problem in the first place. In other words, what he came to realize was that all the questions of the human heart, the numinous and the law that the human heart strives for, how does a good God allow suffering to happen? Christianity is the only religion that actually allows that question to be asked. Because Christianity is the only religion which says that God is good, despite the evidence. You see my point? In other words, he looks around and sees spiders killing bugs and putting their eggs inside them and then consuming the animal from the inside out. He, see, he looks around and sees the, that the world is full of suffering and evil, that your own lives are full of suffering oftentimes. We all have been through something terrible and traumatic. And yet... The only way you can say that it's a problem is if you believe that God is good in the first place, which the facts don't bear out. In other words, what he says is, why in the world do we ask the question at all? Why do we even wonder, why would we say God is good given the evidence unless what's really occurring is that God has implanted that within us? Which, of course, is what Genesis chapter 1 claims. You with me? So when I, in the beginning of the lecture, when I said that the question, the question actually answers itself, right? How does a, why does a good God allow suffering to happen? We're not, we're not actually at the answer yet, but the fact that we ask the question presumes that God is good, in, that there is a God, and that he's good. And the only religion which has ever said that, yes. So he, that actually, are you guys with me? I mean, it's kind of a weird argument, but, I shouldn't say weird, but it's kind of a little tricky to get through. But, what he, but that's actually where he landed, lands in chapter one on Christianity as the very nature of the question actually points you to Christianity. And he says, in other words, he says, actually he doesn't say this, but I said it. Um, page 15, for pain would be no problem unless, unless it was side by side with our daily ex experience of this painful world and we had received by revelation, scripture, what we think a, a good assurance that ultimate reality is, a, is righteous and loving. In other words, only in the Bible do you see a God which reveals himself as righteous and loving. You with me? Yes or no? Yes. Roger, you with me? Yes. Okay, so what he says here, and what I, I have, this is what I want to break on for, from some discussion. He's, I, I have here, in other words, the problem of pain. The, the question of theodicy, and I came to realize this when I was in my early 20s, the problem of theodicy, why does a good God allow suffering to occur? That question assumes 
a Christian worldview. Does that make sense? So to ask the, now we're not answering, we haven't answered the question yet. We'll get to that later. But the whole point I, he, that Lewis wants you to see, the question itself does not dismiss Christianity, but actually proves it. Because only in a Christian worldview can you say that the world is nasty, brutish, and short. Everybody agrees on that. But we still believe that God is good and reveals himself that, that, in that way to us. Any questions? We're going to break for some discussion. Yes, Janie. So somehow we are all programmed to know that there's something better. Yes, Janie said that somehow we are all programmed to know that there is a God. I would argue it comes from Genesis chapter 2. I mean, the Bible explains all this, that man is created in God's image. Therefore, we have an innate, I used to refer to it as, when I was younger, an umbilical, right? Some kind of a spiritual cord connected to the Lord that, it sounds corny, but I mean, some kind of spiritual connection to God that is part of our nature as a human being, Right? which Lewis says later on in the whole book about animal pain, if you've gotten there towards the end of the book, that's another whole discussion. But the idea is, to Janie's point, that human beings are all aware intrinsically that God is real and exists and that he's good despite the evidence. Where does that come from? Yes, anybody else have a question? You guys with me? Yes. That's right, I said a couple of weeks ago. This is not how things are supposed to be. That's right. Janie says that's the same way that I've preached this a million, not a million times, but frequently, that human beings were created for the Garden of Eden, right? Which is not this. And we remember it. And we remember it as, we remember it as a species. Right? We remember Eden, which is why we believe in the numinous and the moral law, because we were created for Eden. And the Bible answers all this stuff. If you're an atheistic evolutionist, where does that come from? And it comes from, you can't answer the question. George. Um, I'm taking a break and get a glass of wine. Are we, how does original sin fit in? In other words, Adam and Eve were, were created in the garden and, and with that, and had no sin. Had no what? And, 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 with, and, and as presented in the garden, had no pain. Right. And so is, is pain related to the fall? Yes. Yes, that's a good. So George said, and we're going to get to this a little bit in chapter two. George said, in the Garden of Eden, there was no pain and suffering. He's right. There was none. It's a result of the fall. In other words, you and I experience, I would submit this. Lewis does not say this, but I believe this to be true as a biblical principle. Humanity was created for the Garden of Eden. That's what the Bible claims. We no longer live there, right? But we were created for it. And we long for it, which is why we all want to live forever. And we all want to uh, experience God firsthand. That's what we were created for. And so George's point is, and what the Bible says, is that all suffering is a result of the fall. We're going to talk about that a little bit in chapter two. Good question. Anybody here have anything else? Then we're going to go to some discussion questions. I thought we would take five minutes, maybe six minutes at your table to discuss, only so that gives you guys a chance to sort of digest what we're talking about here. Is that okay? All right. And then one second, Charlie. And then uh, I've got three questions here. I'll read them to you and I'll cycle through them if you'd like. The first question is, at the beginning of chapter one, Lewis uses a quotation from Pascal, who was also a Christian, by the way, atheist turned Christian. Uh, Lewis uses a quotation from Pascal criticizing those who prove the existence of God from nature. Is that correct? Yes or no? Okay. Read Romans chapter one. You'll see what I mean by that. Uh, if this will work. Okay, here's a, this question I think is a really good one. Some might say that religion was developed because people were afraid of death and evil. The former, uh, who's the guy who was the, the WWE wrestler that became the governor of Minnesota? Jesse Ventura. He famously said this, silly man that he is. He famously said that some people think that religion was developed because people were afraid of death and evil and created the idea of a good and wise God. What does Lewis say is wrong with that assumption on page four and five? That's a great question for you guys to discuss so far. And then third question, because uh, a lot of your friends will think this, that question. Some people say that religion is made up the opiate of the people was Marx's famous quote, right? That religion's made up to make everybody feel good and kind of control the masses. Nonsense. Um, finally, question number three, how does Christianity create rather than solve the problem of pain? That's a good question too. 
How might you use this to reach a non-believer for Christ? So what do you guys think? Question one, two, or three? Which one do you like? Come on. You want, do you want two or three? Three? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll put two or three. Pick it at your table and we'll come back in five minutes, okay? Can you guys talk amongst yourself for five minutes? I'll get question number three. How does Christianity rather create rather than solve the problem of pain? Question number two. Some might say that religion was developed because people were afraid of death and evil and created the idea of a good God. What does Lewis say is wrong? All right, have fun. All right, what do you guys say? Any, uh... Now, how can you be having such a good time talking about suffering? All right, so, um... Anybody, anybody want to share with anything that came up at the table which you thought was good? <laughs> Worthwhile for the, for the crew? Roger? Uh, yes. All right, I'll get you a printed handout next week. Anything else? I'm sorry, what's there? Okay, anything else? Yes, Sharon. You can't hear me? Okay, Sarah asked for printed handouts for the questions for next week. I'll provide those for you. I just didn't even think of it. No problem. Piece of cake. All right, so um, let's move on. Uh, let me ask you this. Would you guys rather me do the questions as a group or the, que or the tables? As a group? Really? Okay, we can do that. Okay, we can do that. Uh, all right, so we're going to move into, yes, Charlie. Okay, no problem, no problem. All right, so we're going to move into chapter two, and this is actually really good stuff. I want to, um, if you've got your book, this is where, so Lewis lays out that uh, obviously the numinous, the moral law, that uh, Christianity actually, uh, by virtue of its assumptions, that Christianity only... The problem of pain only makes sense in the context of a Christian worldview. Um, so we're gonna, now we're going to look at the question of God's omnipotence, right? If God is good, which we would say he is, and he's omnipotent. Anybody know what omnipotent means? All-powerful, can do anything. So we're going to talk about that. So here is, anybody here know anything about logic, a syllogism? Well, he has one on page 17. And here, here is... The problem of pain defined. You ready? You ready? All right. If God, was, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. Right? We're going to get to that later. If God were almighty, omnipotent, he would be able to do what he wished. So if God is, if God is good, he would want his people to be happy. And if God is omnipotent, he can do anything he wants. You with me? The argument? But, there, but, creatures are not happy. Therefore, God either lacks goodness, which is chapter 3, or lacks omnipotence, or both. Are you with me? Okay. It's pretty simple, but if you, you, got, if you, if you break this argument into its piece, the whole book is written about this. So next week, we talk about God's goodness. Today, we're going to talk about God's omnipotence. Then we're going to talk about the fall, we're going to talk about hell, all these things. But the argument itself is actually pretty simple. And it's this, if God is good, okay, as a presumption, then he would wish to make his creatures happy. We're going to talk about that later. If God were almighty, he could do it. But his creatures aren't happy. Therefore, God either is not omnipotent, or he's not good, or he's neither. He's evil and incompetent. <laughs> Does that make sense? Now, he's proven in chapter one that God is good, right? And that all humanity believes that God is good, despite the facts of the world. So where does this come from? Are you with me so far? So we're going to look tonight a little bit at God's omnipotence. This is going to be, a, this is, it sounds really heady. It's actually pretty simple. But it goes like this. Um, we're going to talk about God's goodness next week. And in fact, we're going to talk about happiness. That's a hugely important one. The, uh, God's love versus kindness. We're going to talk about that next week. Today, we're going to talk about omnipotence. Okay, so we need to define our terms um, because the, the argument says that if God can't change things or he won't change things, then 
either, either if, if the argument stands, then God has to be able to be both omnipotent and good, but doesn't. So here's the thing. The suffering, there is suffering either because God can't change it. He's not omnipotent, right? Uh, God doesn't want to change it. He's evil or both. So let's look at omnipotence. Omnipotence means all powerful. Um, most people, I remember when I was in college, we had this professor who was a former Roman Catholic priest with a chip on his shoulder. And yes, I'm saying this on a videotape, and he'll probably, I guess you can probably figure out who he was. Uh, he was at uh, Penn State. He would sit in the classroom and he would smoke cigarettes and tell all of us young 19 year old whippersnappers that we were all foolish for believing in God if we did. And he said something once. He goes, oh, this whole God thing is stupid. He says, you know, we can prove it that God's not real because if God was all powerful, he could create a stone that he couldn't lift. Ever heard that one? It's an old canard. Or God could create a square circle. Or God could create, God, uh, God could create a stone that he couldn't lift. Since he can't create a stone that he can't lift, God can't be omnipotent. Are you with me? It sounds like a trick question. It's really not. He's saying, if God was almighty and all-powerful, like all you silly, naive freshmen here at Penn State think, I can disprove it to you because if God was all-powerful, he could create a stone that he couldn't lift. And we all went, how is that possible? It's not possible. Therefore, God is not omnipotent. You see his point? Okay. He was wrong. (laughs) Here's the reason. Lewis gets into this on this chapter of omnipotence. He says, Lewis says, um, that uh, for some reason, people take things which are contradictory and self-contradictory and assume that if you put God in front of it, it makes it, lo- makes it valid. So for example, he says, um, he says, for God to do something which God can't do is a logical fallacy. You with me? Okay. So for God, God can create a stone that he can't lift is not even a logical, it's not a valid point. It's an illogical it's a logical fallacy. So, um, and Lewis says here on page 18, um, meaning that this, such, this kind of an argument is an irrational statement, quote, a meaningless combination of words does not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them with the words God can. God cannot do something which is logically impossible. God cannot do something which is logically self-contradictory. God cannot do something which contradicts his own nature. Not because it's a, not because, listen, not because it restricts his, um, his capability. It's, a, it's an illogical point. Does that make sense, everybody? So it's not like God, see, he says, he goes into this, a pretty lengthy discussion about this, um, that people assume that there's something which is possible that could be done, but God can't do it for some, because of some limitation. For example, he says an observation about how uh, here I am, I can't see the ocean from my, my building, or I can't see the ocean from my, uh, my office window because there's a building in the way, right? It's impossible for me to see the ocean from where I am. There's a building in the way, for example. But that impossibility assumes that if you moved, you could then see the ocean. Does that make sense? That's different from what Lewis is saying. Lewis is saying, just to make something, if something is logically contradictory, it's impossible to do, period, because it's an illogical statement. And let me, I'll make, and I'll make this very practical for you. Um, page 19, God could not create, he, and he goes into this idea of free will. If God gives us the ability to make decisions, page 19, God could not create a society of free souls, that's us, Without, without simultaneously creating, uh, simultaneously creating a relatively independent nature. God cannot give us free will and then not give us free will. This is the crux of the whole thing. In other words, if God gives us free will, and we'll get into why he did later, but if God gives us free will, the ability to make decisions, he can't then not give us free will. Does that make sense? It's illogically inconsistent. So to say that God to say that there is suffering in the world because God lacks power is not true. God has, God has willingly given us the ability to choose good or evil, right or wrong. And so therefore, we make this, I mean, anybody here ever make a mistake? Okay. What, he, what, what Lewis is saying is, look, God can't give us free will and then not give us free will. If he allows us to be, have free will, he has to allow us to exercise it. If 
Page 24, if souls are free, they cannot be prevented from dealing with the problem by competition instead of courtesy. In other words, if Lewis gives us the ability to do good, he has to also give us the ability to do bad, logically. He can't do both. It's a logical fallacy. He says here, um, the for example, says the permanent nature of wood allows it to be both firewood and a club. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and how we use it by a human being determined by the human use of free will determines whether it is good or evil, firewood or a club, right? Page 24, God can and... So let's just stop there. Does anybody, everybody understand the idea of free will? Yes? That God allows us to choose. Nine, I would say all suffering, I, I would say, qualify that, all evil is the result of the abuse of human free will. Right? Does that make sense? So if a tree, you may have terrible suffering from an accident. That's true. Sadness and sorrowing from an, from an accident. That's true. But evil is willful. Right? You have to define your terms. In other words, if, if, uh, if, if uh, Marty Fight is sitting, goes to sit down in her chair and I pull her chair and she falls down and breaks her, breaks her, I don't know, her leg, right? Or something. And I did it with malicious intent. That's evil, right? If, if she goes to sit down and misses her chair and falls, that's not evil, but it is still suffering. Does that make sense? So it is the, I would, and Lewis doesn't say this, but theologians would make this point that it is the exercise of human or angelic angels, free will, that makes something evil. Uh, the idea of the, the uh, scripture talks about, we won't get into this much in this book, but demons, right? And angels are beings made by God. They are non-temporal. That's another whole discussion. But they have the ability to make decisions. Free will, according to the Bible. They can choose good or evil. Uh, it's the exercise of free will. What makes a demon a demon is it's an angel which has chosen evil. That's another discussion for another day. But the point is, what makes something evil is the exercise of free will. Any questions on that? So you will understand when you say, how does a good God allow bad things to happen? How does God allow Venezuela to suffer? How does God allow people to do uh, full-term abortions, right? For example, let's use what's, it's in the news. How does God allow that to happen? Well, if God is going to allow the exercise of human free will, right, he has to allow it. He can't allow and not allow at the same time. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. I mean, and it can be, this can be anything. It can be any, anything at all. I mean, even in your own life, right, your own heart, this is Lent, in your own heart, what makes evil evil is the exercise of your will against God's wishes for what he wants from you. So evil and suffering are not two, they're not the exact same thing. Evil causes suffering, but not all suffering is a result of evil. All, all, suffer, all of it is a result of the fall, which we'll talk about later. Whew, I'm giving you too much. Any questions? <laughs> That's a lot to pack into half an hour, I'm sorry. What do you got? Anybody have a question or an observation or comment so I can clarify for you? Who's got a question for me? Marty. That's exactly right. We're going to get to that later. Marty said she does not believe that God necessarily wants us to be happy. You're right. Uh, I think he wants us to be uh, faithful. We're going to get to that later. That's a great point. Um, and that, that's actually the three, the points of that argument that God, if God wishes his people to be happy, that's part of the argument people use. I'm not sure that that's true. He wants us to be joyful, but joy oftentimes is a result of dealing with suffering. Anybody here ever, and this is actually, this is not Lewis, this is Rodriguez, <laughs> but, uh, but whenever you go through life, anybody here have an exercise regimen? All right, you, most of you do. Uh, anybody, here, anybody here not eat everything you want to eat? Okay, those two things are suffering. <laughs> they are self-imposed suffering. They are. And the reason you do it is to prevent something else, Right? So the idea is that God, God, so all good growth and development, whether it's going to grad school like I did or going to seminary or, or losing weight or working out, all good, 
All growth is a result, frankly, of suffering. Do you ever think of it that way? And so this is kind of your point, Marty, which we're going to get into next week. If God wants us to grow, again, he allows free will, right? He can't allow it and not allow it. So he allows free will, but he also, suffering occurs for our, our, our own growth. I, as a pastor, I will tell you the people that grow the most in their devotion to God are not the ones who don't suffer, but the ones who do. And then, and because when you suffer, what's happening, the bottom, all the assumptions you had of the way the world should work, right? All the things you leaned on, something is suddenly taken away from you, right? And it's really painful. And it forces you to rely on, to lean on God, right? It doesn't force you to, but that's an option that God allows you to have. It doesn't force you to. It does force you to realize what you lean on before no longer works. That is true. Whether you choose to lean on God is actually, that's the question. Anyway, um, so God's omnipotence. God does not, the, the question of doubting God's omnipotence because there's suffering in the world misses the point. If God allows free will, he has to also allow non-free will. God can't do both. Um, he mentioned, Lewis, C.S. Lewis mentions miracles. Um, and this, I want to talk about this for a second. Um, miracles are, anybody know the definition of a miracle? Come on. The temporary suspension of natural law. You didn't know that? A miracle. How many, how many of you have ever prayed for a miracle? Right? We all have. And then we all get frustrated when the answer is no. Right? Uh, I have seen them. They're, they are exceedingly rare. Uh, I have seen miracles. I have seen things which have... Uh, Jim Largery here, he would tell you as a doc, he's seen many times in his own life uh, where there's the, you know, the diagnosis was, uh, there's a, they, they had some sanitary explanation. No medical explanation. That's it for a recovery. A medical, a healing, a, a miracle. It is a, it is a suspension of natural law. They do occur. Anybody here ever seen one? I have many times. Um, not many times, several times. The thing is, if, if, if God has laws in place and a miracle is a temporary suspension of natural law, Lewis says on page 20, 27, they must be extremely rare, right? Miracles are rare by definition. They have to be. Um, okay. From the outset, to admit the possibility, page 27, and then we're going to get into some discussion. From the outset, to admit the possibility of suffering, um, uh, never mind, that's too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so the point, the point being, the point being, God, the existence of evil, the point, only thing, I want, the only takeaway from chapter number two is this. The nature of evil does not invalidate God's omnipotence. If you get one point from this whole today, from session two, from chapter two, it's simply this. You can go back and look at it again. The nature, the existence of evil does not negate God's omnipotence. Okay, God can, no long, God can no more do a logical fallacy than he can do things. He can suspend natural law, and I've seen it. You've, some of you have seen it. But God can't do something which is logically inconsistent. He, can't make a square cir- he cannot make a square circle, or he can't make a blue-red, and he can't make a stone that he can't lift. It's just it's nonsense. So the existence of evil does not mean that God is not omnipotent. Okay? Too heady? Let's have some discussion. So, anybody have a question you want to ask? We got we got five more minutes. Charlie. Uh, one question. I want All right. To move back to the issue about nature of being evil or not evil. Okay. In the spider story, it, it's it's a evil thing from the standpoint of the plot. Yeah, that's a good point. So in the, the spider, the spider, I wouldn't, okay, I don't, if I said it was evil, it, uh, maybe I misspoke, then at least it, it involves suffering, yeah. right, on the part of the fly, yeah. <laughs> anyway. And then, and later on, on the part of the spider, when the next thing comes along and eats him, I mean, it's yeah. just a infinite, you know, not infinite, but it's a progression yeah, so of predation. predation. Uh, well, I would say, okay, is it neutral? I would say, that's a good question. And we're going to get into this when we talk, does a spider exercise free, does a spider exercise will in killing a fly? I would say no. Does he impose suffering? Yes. Is there will, is there malicious intent? No. If a dog bites 
a mailman or bites somebody, is it evil? No. Is it suffering? Yes. Only humans or angels have, I would argue, free will that they can do or not do what God, the moral law, commands them to do. Dogs, I would argue, don't have a sense of the moral law, right? Human beings do. Yes. Anthony. So uh, a lot of people say that, you know, they like to say God has a plan for you or God knows exactly where you need to be or that sort of thing. Yes. How, how does that reconcile with the idea of free will? That's a very good question. You have the ability to reject that plan. Yes, you do. I would, yes. Anthony's point, that's a very... If you can solve this one, I'll give you a, I'll give you a candy bar. Uh, there, is, there is two threads that, are co- that, that both run through Scripture. A, that humans have free will, and B, that God is sovereign. Sovereign meaning that God is, oversees all things. Uh, I do believe in both. And it sounds like it would be inconsistent, paradoxical. It's actually not. The one thing you have to remember, and this is really heady, but I'll, throw, I'll make it simple and just sort of throw it out there. You and I exist in time, Right? It's now seven o'clock. It will be 7.05 in five minutes, which means if we, since we live in time, we, by definition, change. We get older, we get hungry, we sleep. You know, we change. That's what being in time means. God is not in time, right? He is atemporal, meaning he is both. This gets really heady. If it confuses you, don't worry about it. But he is both at the moment of creation and the moment at the end of creation right now. He is right now at my, the moment of my death. Right? So he knows all the decisions I will have made and not made. And I would say that God is like the, and again, I really, it's, this is like the fish trying to speculate what it's like outside the fishbowl. But I, so I will say this though, God moves the pieces on the chessboard around, right? He respects human free will, but he also accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. So you can reject God. You can choose evil. You can choose hell, Right? But God still has a plan for you that you may reject, very, very, and most people do. Um, but God still works his purposes out for those who love him, Scripture says, right? It is a great big mystery. If you're a Calvinist, you would say human beings don't have free will. That's one solution. The second solution is pure Arminianism, that God isn't sovereign. Neither of those fit Scripture. Both Scripture says God both allows human decision, but is also sovereign. And quite frankly, there's no real explanation for it. Other than, like I said to you before, God is atemporal. He is outside our experience of time. And so therefore, whatever he does works. I don't know. That's the best I've got. Paul? Well, it seems God's outside of time. So he made Adam and Eve. He knew that they were going to mess up. He wouldn't have known they were going to mess up. He, that's, a, that's an illogical question. If God is outside of time, and this is actually a really great, when it comes to divine foreknowledge, people say, well, God knows what you're going to do. No, God's already there. He looks back and see. He looked back and saw Adam and Eve before they were created. Sounds crazy, but it's logical. Right. You don't surprise God. Anything else, Marilyn? But with relation to the path that we take and our free will. Yes. Anybody who has experienced God knows that when we reject where we're supposed to be that yeah. God is always there nudging. Yeah, and that's a good point. She's Marilyn, and again, this is Lent, right? So Marilyn made the point that whenever we, we reject, when we, make it, when we exercise our will and make a decision counter to what God wants for us, we call that sin, and we all do it, okay? What the word, the word uh, to correct that is the word repent, which again, sounds like a loaded word, repent. It, all it means is I'll make an illustration. You're walking along. You're walking along the God path, the Jesus path. And you decide, I'm going to go over here for a little, see what's going on, which is a sin. You, make, you step off what God intends for you to do. To repent means to stop and go backwards, to change direction. That's all the word repent means. And that's why the Christian life, mine and yours, is all about a continual repentance. It's all about a continual realizing, not like feeling guilt and shame all the time, but realizing, all right, Lord, I blew it. I got to go back. I got to get back on the path. And, you, and he always takes you, right? Thanks be to God. But only because Jesus died for you first. That's another whole thing. That's another whole thing. All right, so we're going to time out. One more quick question, then we're going to wrap up. Anything else? Yes. Is, it, is this too much? Okay. It's heady, but it's really important stuff. Go back and reread it again with the points I've made, and maybe it'll, it'll, maybe it'll make more sense this time. Bill? 
Yeah, Christian, that's a good point. Christianity is complex, but it should be. I mean, it's just talking about God, and we're talking about human nature, right? I mean, human na humans are exceedingly complex. Anybody have kids? They're really complex, right? They're just complicated. Life is complicated. Uh, why, why should we expect a simple answer? Um, on the one hand, Christianity is extremely basic. Jesus loved me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You all learned that as a kid. That is true. But it's a lot more, but it gets, you know, it's kind of like peeling an onion. The more you get into it, the more and more profound it gets. You use the word anfractious. What's the use word? A what word? Anfractious. Anfractious? I've never heard that word before. All right. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this. It's been fun. It's heady. Before we go, uh, if you could please grab your food. Uh, if you would help um, clean up your tables, just throw everything away for me, please. I'd appreciate that. Next week. Hang on. Next week, chapters three and four. And uh, come with questions if you have anything. And uh, shall we close in prayer? Why don't we stand? And we'll close in prayer. <laughs> the Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this time together as your parish. We thank you, Lord, for, for C.S. Lewis and his mind, as difficult as it may sometimes be to figure out what he's saying. But we thank you, Lord, for the clarity or the increasing clarity he gives to us. And we thank you, Lord, most importantly, for the clarity that Scripture gives us about who we are and who you are. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, take what we've learned tonight and apply it to our own lives to see the world from your perspective and to realize that even though evil is in the world, you have conquered the world through Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, friends, we'll see you next week.